Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Chapter 66 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, divorce, combat robots, and crazy families. Oh my. Divorce, American style, is the subject of every other weekend, and it's told through the eyes of an eight-year-old living in Southern California circa 1988. Our Marla Diamond spoke all about it with author Zulema Renee Summerfield. Let's start with your main character, Nanny, a very smart girl with quite an imagination. Who is she and why did you decide that you were going to use a child as your protagonist? Um, that's a great question. I would say that she is and she is not me. Um, she's a highly fictionalized version of myself at that age. As um, are the events in the book, they're fictionalized um, retellings of some things that happened to myself and my family um, in my young life. I don't know that initially it was a conscious decision to tell the story from that age. That was just the voice that sort of appeared. Um, And then she kind of developed over the the course of writing the novel. Um, But but I do love her. I find her charming and I, I worry about her at times. Yeah, um, she has a very active, overactive imagination and a lot of anxiety and really no outlet for her fears. Um, and you use whole chapters to go through scenarios like an earthquake or, uh, you know, Russia sending soldiers into her elementary school. You know, t- today, Nenny might see a psychologist, uh, a counselor to talk this out, but... That wasn't done much for kids in the 80s, right? Yeah. So actually, interestingly, at one point in the writing of the book, I was driving and I and I thought, why didn't why didn't my our parents send us to counseling? And I called my mom and um, she said, well, we did it a little bit, but it just wasn't really a thing then. You know, now everybody nowadays, everybody has a therapist, which is great, but it was kind of not um, as ubiquitous in those days. So um, I I did a little bit of counseling as a kid, but not substantial. How old were you when your parents divorced? Again, it's it's a, the story is a a retelling of, you know, I moved things around in time and I, and I shifted things around significantly. So I was probably actually at only five or six and then he's a little bit older than I was. But only eight years old, and uh, she tells quite a story. Um, is there a reason why you chose an eight-year-old to tell this story? Um, again, I, it was just the voice that um, arrived. Um, that kind of funny, observant, narrative voice is what came. It came in the present tense. I don't always write in the present tense. And um, I think it was it was definitely a challenging voice to write, and I had to give myself some permission to kind of move around in time towards the end a little bit. Um, <clears throat> um, but it's not an easy uh, narrative 
point of view by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know that I would do it again. to be honest. (laughs) Right. It's hard to see through the eyes of an eight-year-old, but we certainly do uh, in Nenny. And she's got siblings and step-siblings, and you've developed these characters so well that I could feel their pain. Um, It's a blended family, Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of difficulty. That's nice to hear. In in one of the early um, drafts, I got some feedback that said, uh, the siblings don't stand out enough, so I had to go back in and do work to make sure that they were each individual people with their own personalities and their own sort of miniature narrative arcs within the larger novel. I'm glad that worked. I felt so much sympathy for Tiny because he is really too young to understand what's going on, and he really yeah. isn't heard, and he's mocked by his older brother and his step-siblings. I just felt so bad for him. Yeah. He's a sweet little guy. We love Tiny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this family um, sort of muddles through, right? They sort of make it mm-hmm. work. Yeah, and that's a big theme in the book is that um, sort of at the heart of the novel, there's a tragedy that blindsides uh, the family and no one's expecting it. And um, the book is in large part about, how, one, how families kind of break apart and take form in new shape and new iterations, but also about how those terrible things can bring us together in the end and um, kind of becomes a, a thread to, to weave a family closer together. And you use a lot of references to what was going on in the uh, 80s. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Cold War was still going on. We had the wall breaking down in uh, East Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a reason why you decided to add these sort of momentous news events? Yeah, I remember. So um, when the Berlin Wall fell, I was a little, gosh, I might have been a little bit older than any, but around the same time. And um, I remember being in, they had like a reading class that you would go to. And my reading teacher, well, first of all, I remember seeing it on the news and seeing it in magazines. And I had no idea what was going on, um, just in like a macro context. I just knew that this was a big historical moment. And I knew that it was... um, big politically and big personally for the the people that you saw clamoring on the walls and just their exuberance and their joy. And my teacher brought in pieces of the Berlin Wall that maybe her sister had sent her or somebody had sent to her. And she was so emotional and she was just holding these chunks of the wall and passed it around. And all of the students, you know, eight or nine years old were holding these pieces of wall that I don't know that any of us really knew what we were holding. We just knew that it was momentous. And um, that has always stuck with me. And in the writing of the book, I knew that I wanted to um, kind of move towards that moment in history. And also, it's a great metaphor how we build walls um, inside ourselves and how we, if we're careful and loving, we can help each other break them down. So, um that symbol in particular, I, I knew early on that I wanted to work in. And there's a lot of 
Catholicism because Nenny attends a parochial school. And I'm I'm wondering mm-hmm. um, why you decided to put her in a parochial school where she questions the tenets of Catholicism. She's she doesn't. Yeah, she's she's not. She gets sent to the principal a lot. <laughs> yes. Well, again, I, she is based on me and I'm not going to lie. I was something of a class clown. Not to the extent that she is, but I was, I had a tendency to blurt things out and teachers either loved me or they hated me pretty consistently. Um, and I went to a Catholic school too. So that was um, the setting of my own childhood education. Got it. So I'm wondering what is Nanny like as an adult? We get a small taste of her in adulthood. Is she close with her brothers and step-siblings? Does she look at her stepfather as her father? What What is she like as a grown-up? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. So that this is where the line between fiction and reality becomes really thin. And I would just say that Nenny is me, and I'm very close to my family. They're wonderful people. Um, I'm really close to my stepdad. I'm close to all of my parents. They're all still alive. And um and we're a pretty tight-knit little clan, so um, I'm so happy to have all of them in my life. So you're doing well. Thank you, yes, <laughs> for the most part. I still have my anxieties uh, and, and things that I'm working through, and I, I do see a therapist now, so um, times have changed, but um, I'm doing great. Thank you. That's good. I found so much of myself in any um, child who suffers mm. a tremendous loss at such a tender age, and she's so anxious. Um, my father died in 1984 when I was 13. Mm. My brother was nine. I understood what was going on. I don't really know how much my brother uh, grasped um, what it was, and it wasn't until my adulthood that I was able to deal with that anxiety, that fatalistic thinking, you know, what if something happened to my mom? Um, yeah, I'm sure you, you felt those, that those things too. Yeah. And that was something that was really, um, sort of personally useful in writing the book is I realized, um, you know, many, these, there are these chapters throughout the book that are her fears played out in her imagination. So they're written, um, as she's imagining them and they're pretty hyperbolic they get pretty hyperbolic and kind of absurd and um i realized in the writing of them that the thing that you fear is never really the thing that happens um whether it's a small anxiety like a social anxiety or something really big um i I came to realize that the thing that you're fixating on is never the thing that actually kind of knocks you off your feet and so now, again, I still have anxieties and I have fears and they kind of come and they go. And in those moments, I just try to quiet myself and remind myself, this is just your mind trying to expel extra energy. And um, it's sort of comforting to think, um, oh, I will never anticipate the thing that I should actually anticipate. But that could also be a, a a thing to terrify you if you wanted to go down that path that you could be blindsided at any moment. But um, I choose to take the other route, which is um, be where you are. You never know what's going to happen. So just appreciate where you are and who you're with, you know. I like I like that thinking. Mm. And in our adult world where so much bad is happening in in the world, um, I 
I think this book is a nice roadmap for parents who may mm. wonder how to speak to their kids about loss, about divorce, and about what's going on in the news. So mm. thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for writing this book. Oh, thank you so much. That's really nice to hear, and I'm, I'm really glad that you that, that it resonated with you. That's nice. Thank you. The book is Every Other Weekend. It is on store shelves now. Zulema Renee Summerfield, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Dale Brown is a man way ahead of his time. The author of over 20 books, Brown has a knack for writing high-tech military thrillers featuring technology we're years away from using in the real world. He doesn't have a crystal ball, I asked, but he is a tenacious researcher. We recently spoke about the future of warfare and his new book, The Moscow Offensive, which is this week's Beach Read Pick. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? The uh, Moscow Offensive has to do with uh, revenge and, and vengeance. It's uh, it's a Russian president's uh, chance to to uh, to put the herd on the United States directly instead of uh, fighting off enemy forces inside Eastern Europe and inside Russia. He gets the chance now to go to the United States and and a hunt down the enemy that, that has been bothering him for the past uh, uh, three or four years. And this isn't your average spy thriller. There's a, a sci-fi aspect to this as well. Uh, what was your inspiration for the combat robots that feature so prominently in your book? Yeah, I've been writing about the cybernetic infantry devices for for several years now. I, uh, I think the, the initial idea came about when I watched a... Uh, watched a video about a competition being held in Japan about fighting robots. And one of the robots was, was manned. It was actually being run by a person inside the robot. So uh, that was my initial idea for the, uh, for the CIDs, and I've used them in probably five or six novels now. And I've read that you believe robots, cyber warfare, control of outer space are the battlefields of the future. How do you see things shaping up? Well, I think think unmanned aircraft are here already. They're being used for for more and more missions now, and and the technology will just be spiraling upwards. Uh, I think each and every year. So I think the I think that technology is is maturing very well. I think the United States is starting to get back into space, especially uh, especially led by private companies. We're we're starting to get back into space and starting to position ourselves more and more on the military side of space now. And I think the um, I think space and cyberspace are the two areas where um, where the United States needs needs to have an advantage and needs to to uh, to take control, just as we've taken control of the oceans with with uh, with the U.S. Navy. And do you have uh, an idea or of what the U.S. needs to do in order to take back that control or take that control? Well, we need to make the investment in the technology that's that's necessary to uh, to take control of those those two domains. Uh, it's a it's an investment. It's a long term investment, but it's something we need to be doing right now in order to uh, to uh, maintain dominance. Because I think that dominance is very slowly slipping away. Um, uh, countries like Russia and China are investing heavily in uh, not just not just Earth based systems like their navies and their air forces but but they're investing more in cyber warfare and they're investing more in space and we need to to uh, to be able to to stay up with them and eventually and eventually dominate those two areas
And STEM education plays a, a large role in that as well, right? Yeah, it sure does. Um, uh, we haven't emphasized that. It's starting to be emphasized more and more. I know the, the uh, Civil Air Patrol that I belong to, is that's their, uh, that's their main area of emphasis other than emergency services, is they really want to emphasize uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. And they want to, to, uh, to make that a hallmark for, for all the operations in the future. And more and more organizations are getting behind STEM education. And, uh, and I think now that, that, that because the emphasis is growing like it is, I think that um, science and engineering isn't that, that, that kind of boring, nerdy thing anymore. It's, it's kind of a cool thing to do, to, to be able to design your own robots and, and uh, uh, participate in computer, um, you know, computer Olympics, uh, cybersecurity Olympics. And it's, uh, it's, not, it's not nerdy anymore. It's a cool thing to do. You definitely make it seem very cool in your book. I love being on the cutting edge of things. You know, it, it, it's I've been writing for so many years, and I've been lucky enough to look look ahead, doing uh, doing research, looking ahead three, five, ten years, and then, then writing about uh, technology and weapon systems as if they really exist, and the, uh, putting them to use in a scenario based on what's going on in the world right now. And then, and then since I've been around so, so long, I get to actually, actually see those weapons in action. Uh, you know, I've written about, um, you know, GPS guided weapons and laser guided weapons long before desert storm. That that's when I think the world was, I was really, really introduced to those kind of weapon systems. And now, now I write about manned robots and I, and I write about, uh, about sophisticated laser weapons and things like that. And, we're going to see them in action here very, very soon, I think. I think it's really interesting that you keep that human component to the robots. There has to be a human inside the machine, and it's the interface and how all that works, rather than just having it be a purely unmanned AI killing machine. It's. Uh, I think that's one of the big dilemmas that they're going to dog these this new technology and the uh, things like, like unmanned uh, 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 drones and and unmanned uh, undersea vehicles and things like that is that are we getting away from from is killing going to be that 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 bloodless now is it uh are we going to send in armies of robots to uh to face down the enemy and uh will that change the whole nature of warfare will it be too too easy to to start a war knowing that that we're not sending soldiers in there anymore to uh to fight them so so that's a that's a major question that 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 we really haven't engaged that that yet. But once we start seeing more of these these unmanned systems in the battlefield, and especially when we start seeing them flying overhead and and stepping inside one to uh, to a commute to go to work, I think think those questions will have to be addressed. And I think the United States should should take a role, should take a major role in. In developing that that new technology and answering those those moral questions about what what role they have in the future of warfare. I know you're a former Air Force pilot. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, when you were in the service, think that this is what the future held and this is where it was heading? The research I've always done and the uh, and the technology that 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 I've written about and researched, uh, I could very easily see this see this technology emerging and. Uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun doing the research and looking ahead, and uh, and I'll always be doing it. You know, I plan on doing it for the next twenty years at least. It's it, 
it's fun to do. It's fun to speculate about it. And, and, uh, and the more I write about it and the more I just keep on doing the research, the more, more satisfaction I get out of the job. And there also has to be some sort of satisfaction in looking back and saying, hey, I said that that was going to happen. <laughs> oh, it, it sure does. It, and it's, it's, uh, my readers sometimes uh, tell me on Facebook and Twitter that, that uh, they just, they just read this thing in the newspaper and, you know, Dale Brown's written about that uh, five books ago. So, so that's a lot of fun doing it. And they, and they wonder also when, when something like that happens, have they ever contacted me and asked me about, well, what's, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen in the next three to five years? Or maybe they're, they're ripping off my ideas and developing weapon systems based on my novel. So, so I don't know if any of that, that stuff is true, but it, but it's fun to have my readers give me feedback like that and, and speculate about about how incredible it is that I've, I've written about this stuff and all of a sudden it's three years later it's actually come true. So can you say on the record whether or not you've had that phone call from someone? No, I have not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. It, it would be, uh, uh, I've had strange things happen. I've written about a, uh, uh, a manned aircraft flying into the White House uh, a terrorist act, and and after the about four months after the paperback came out, the incident really happened. Someone someone tried to fly into the White House, and so uh, the next day I got a I got a visit from the Secret Service, uh, and they, they came to my home and asked me, "Well, did that that pilot ever contact you about about wanting to do that?" And I said, "No," and they left, and they came back the next day, and their questions had changed after that, and they. Now they're asking, well, how did you know about the the exact geographic coordinates of the White House? Uh, you know, how did you know about the elevation? How did you know about the uh, the uh, the time it takes to fly from from this airport in Maryland to the White House? And and I was a navigator in the Air Force, so I could easily pull out a chart and measure all this stuff, and and I could show them the research I did about the actual information about about things like the White House, but. Um, it was unnerving to get visits from the Secret Service asking asking funny questions about that. They were they were wondering about the pilot of that plane, and then then they turn around and say, "Okay, let's some let's ask some questions about you." So that that wasn't very fun. I bet it wasn't. So what are you working on next? Uh, I'm busy working on uh, book number twenty nine. It's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff about the uh, the next field of battle. I think space is going to be. In the next few uh, few stories, there's incredible technology going on with uh, with what's going on in the next next generation of space. I'm fascinated by by the uh, by private companies marching into space, and I think I'm going going to uh, point things in that direction. I I think what what the private sector now is doing in space is incredible, and the the level of level of innovation and ideas are, is just incredible, and I think it's only going to get better, and I really can't can't wait to write about it. Well, I look forward to reading about it and whatever your crystal ball tells you. <laughs> <laughs> Dale Brown, the new book is The Moscow Offensive. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for, for having me on the show, Lisa. The stats are staggering. Approximately one in five Americans will experience mental illness in a given year. When you stop to think about it, that really means no family left untouched. 
Dr. Edward Hallowell knows all too well what that's like. He's an acclaimed psychiatrist whose upbringing inspired his career choice. He chronicles his childhood and his family's struggles with mental illness in the book, Because I Come from a Crazy Family. He spoke to our Pat Farnack. To me, your book was so brave because you reveal so much and it's, of course, timely as well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It, it was uh, it was a risk in, uh, writing it, but I but I felt I want to sort of give permission for people to be open and real. And uh, if you have mental illness in your history and in your family, you should be able to talk about it. And and I tried to do it in a way that was humorous. You know, it, this is not a woe is me book by any means. It's a uh, let's all enjoy it as best we can. And and my family was very loving. You know, they were drunk and crazy most of the time, but they were they were very loving and uh, funny and. Uh, made the best of whatever the situation happened to be. Well, your book did come off as fun, uh, believe it or not, even though the topic is is so dark and and, and very revealing. It's still a taboo topic, but it seems to be, uh, at least talking about mental illness, is starting, starting to come out of the closet. Would you agree? Yes, I, I hope and pray, and I hope my book in some small way contributes to that. It's a it's one of the last taboos, and it and that taboo does a lot of damage because it it means that a lot of people don't get help who could. In no field of medicine does the uh, does the uh, consumption of the science lag further behind of the science than in mm. psychiatry. We we know so much more. We could help so many more people than we do simply because people are afraid to access the help that is available. Many families have stories that are uh, kept hidden. And um, uh, after reading your book, uh, I was talking about the story from my family. I had an uncle who uh, had problems with alcohol and a deep mental illness and was in a a state hospital. He broke out one day. Um, I was in grade school, I think third grade, and my brother was in first grade. And my Mm. dad came to the school and uh, spoke to the nuns. He took us out of school and took us home. We tend as a society to think, right, that mental illness is something that happens in other families. And in yours, I mean, it's such a myth. Your dad went to Harvard, for goodness sake. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it happens to the smartest people. In many ways, uh, I think mental illness is a marker of, ta- of talent. It, it, most people who are particularly exceptionally intelligent and creative have one or another, either an anxiety disorder, major depression, bipolar disorder, substance use disorder. Uh, it, it's more common than not to find that. Yeah, my dad was a was a was a brilliant man, a, a all American hockey player at Harvard. My married my mother, who was the prettiest girl in Boston, according to the Boston Herald at the time. And and uh, then he went off to war and and fought submarines uh, in, in the North Atlantic and. After having had my two brothers, and when he came back, he went crazy. And, uh, um, you know, they uh, diagnosed him schizophrenic. And, and uh, back then, if you became psychotic, you were automatically diagnosed schizophrenic. And they gave him insulin shock and, and electric shock. And one weekend, they unwisely decided to let him go home for a trial visit. Well, he was still psychotic. And when he got home, he decided he wanted to murder my mother. He was, he was crazy. But my mother, being the artful woman that she was, she talked him into making love instead. And that's where I came from. 
And it's an interesting beginning for a psychiatrist, you know. Not everybody can uh, talk about how they were conceived, correct? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, uh, so, but then uh, they got divorced because the psychiatrist told my mother that he'd never be cured. But when a young psychiatrist came on the scene and let's, said, let's reconsider this diagnosis and let's try this man on lithium, which was just coming on the scene, my dad was basically cured, and he spent the rest of his life teaching public school in New Hampshire. But my family had been broken uh, by then, and and, uh, and that's, you know, one of the reasons I feel so passionate about trying to always reconsider diagnosis and try to, you know, because, you know, you, if you get it wrong, you can lose a whole person's life and... and uh, and my dad regained his life because the diagnosis was corrected and the treatment was revised. There was someone else in your family. Uh, was it your brother who also went to Harvard? Yes. My brother graduated near the top of his class at Harvard, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, in his junior year. Had a fellowship, spent two years in London basically living with Lord Snow, C.P. Snow, and mm-hmm. studying literature. Came back, wrote cover stories for Life magazine, published a few books. And then he cracked up. He um, he became psychotic with bipolar disorder and uh, also alcoholism. He also happened to be gay. And and uh, but he went into AA. And when he was in AA, he met a woman, and they fell in love—not sexual love—but they lived for the rest of their lives together, taking care of each other. She'd had children, and so, but she was divorced. So the two of them had this. Uh, asexual, basically marriage without being married, taking care of each other. It was very sweet. But he'd, he'd kind of fried his brain, if you will. He lost his brilliance. But he was able to teach writing at the Harvard Extension School. He could still write a little bit. And, uh, um, but but the, uh, the experience of, of being crazy and, and the treatments that he got really cost him his superior intelligence and, and edge. But but he was a sweeter man uh, <laughs> after that experience. He'd been he'd been pretty pretty selfish and, and uh, uh unto himself when he when he was flying high and and achieving all his honors. But then, then he uh but you know it ravaged him and as it as it did my father and then my my un- uncle uh, never achieved he also Harvard grad with high honors and, and uh, should have achieved wonders in the business world, but he, due to his extreme anxiety disorder, sort of retreated to Cape Cod and, and uh, ran a bowling alley in Chatham and and, uh, and never never quite dared enter the business world as he should have. Now, if he'd had his anxiety disorder treated the way we could today, I'm pretty confident he could have become a real titan in the in the world of business. So, you know, and that's, I tell these stories with love and respect and humor because they were all wonderfully interesting, funny people. And I, and as you, when you read the book, you, you can, you, you saw for yourself, I, I don't tell them in a didactic way at all. There's no, there's no preaching or anything like that in the book. I just tell the stories and let them speak for themselves. And 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 you don't back away from from these people because after all they are your family. You find mm-hmm. some way to deal with them. Uh, I was impressed by um, uh, you and a, a small group going into your brother's uh, stinking apartment where yes. there were, I mean, years of of buildup of 
all Filth. kinds of yes debris, <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, going in there with rubber gloves, I guess, and and right. giving it a good cleaning. Not right. everybody, uh, not everybody would do that out of fear or whatever. And right. you were you were in there, eyes wide open, maybe watering eyes, but right. they were wide open. <laughs> right, oh. right, right, right. You know, that's yeah. We I tried to tell the the truth, you know, and I didn't romanticize it, but neither did I did I make it sound, you know horrible and you know it just uh i i wanted people to see my story and and feel for it uh in a in a good way in a loving way and 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 by by implication feel permission to be open about their own families because you know the so-called mental illness i don't even really like the term but it touches most families in one way or another um, particularly if you include substance use, it, it's it, most family, by far the majority of families are are touched by this, and yeah. and uh, and it's a, it's just no, it makes no sense to be secret about it, because that only makes it worse. I celebrate my family. I'm very proud of them. You know, I can t- I can and, tell that in the book. It really yeah. comes through. Yeah, very strongly. Yeah. I just I do I sort of say, let's just let's just all, all band together and and. Uh, it's part of life. Let's celebrate life. And part of life is, is being crazy. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned uh, how um, instability can, it, it isn't helped by alcohol. And you talk no. about how, um, I had a laugh, uh, the uh, waspy get-togethers, that right. you are, there is always a lot of alcohol and maybe a Ritz cracker or two in a bowl, whereas right. other family <laughs> gatherings like the Italians, they cook and they cook for right. 50 people and right. alcohol is sort of uh, not On the, 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 yeah, <laughs> right. that that right. was yeah. funny, but alcohol really helped undo your mom for one thing. Oh, it sure did. Yeah, it, it sure did. She, after her second divorce to my my stepfather, who had his own demons that he took out on her, uh, she she really lived out her life uh, by herself, with you know surrounded by family, but by herself and and drinking and and um, she never lost her hope. She always was an optimist. Talked about the bluebird of happiness and all that, but but it was it was pretty much every day uh, drinking and and uh, it was sad. I I. I I felt for her, but again, she never got the kind of help that she could have gotten uh, had she recognized the disease for what it is and, and all of that. But, mm. but again, the book doesn't go into talking about that. I don't. It's, this is not a this is not a book about go get help at all. It's a story book. It's a book of, of stories about my crazy family. And then, and then after I tell that, then I go into my early training in psychiatry and, and, uh, learning, uh, from the wonderful patients at the Massachusetts mental health center and, and the, and the great teachers that I had there. And then again, the stories there are, are pretty funny they are, um, as well as, as poignant. It, it was almost like it was preordained or in the stars for you to really become a psychiatrist. I mean, I, I felt through the, throughout the book, I was asking who better <laughs> to, to, to treat people who have these kinds of problems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I, it was, it was sort of meant to be from, even from the moment of conception, you know, it, it's a, uh, um, that that was 
that was my lot in life was to try to try to help people who um, have you know very different kinds of brains and very different kinds of life experiences. And because I, I have a fundamental liking of them, as, aside from understanding of them, I like them. I'm far from being scared by crazy people, I, I enjoy them. I think your your average banker is more dangerous than than your average crazy person. So, you know, or certainly I, uh, your average politician. Yes, well, <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> uh, well, wonderful book, wonderful book. Because I come from a crazy family, it's by Dr. Edward Hallowell. Um, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us about this today. It was it was just a, a marvelous book. I I so thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And that about does it for Good All Chapter sixty six. We have an all-American lineup next week for the 4th of July holiday, including a novel in which George Washington is kidnapped, shipped off to England, and tried for high treason at the height of the Revolutionary War. I bet you can't wait to hear what that's about. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. And as always, feel free to email me, Lisa T, at lisat at wcbs880.com.